Nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Foreign Edition. Angela Merkel's Bavarian coalition partner goes down to a thumping defeat in state elections in Bavaria over the weekend, casting Angela Merkel, the strong leader in Europe, her uh, government into doubt in the coming weeks. And meanwhile, China accelerates its repression of uh, its Muslim Uyghur minority in the west of the country. The rest of the world is starting to take notice. This is Foreign Edition from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Uh, I am Joseph Sternberg. Coming to you from our luxury podcasting studio on the banks of the River Thames in London. I am in for Mary Kissel again. And talking Bavaria and China with me today is my colleague Hugo Restall, who is on the line from Asia. Hi, Hugo. Hi, Joe. It's good to be with you. Well, it's great to uh, be back here talking about global chaos and disorder. And we are actually going to start in a country that is not known for being chaotic or disorderly, Germany. So uh, listeners by now might be aware that over the weekend we had a uh, state-level election in Bavaria, which is the uh, very conservative uh, state uh, right at the south of Germany. Uh, you know, Germany provides us a rolling electoral calendar for its uh, state election, so you have one whether you want them or not every uh, few months. And uh, the big news here, Hugo, is that uh, the conservative party, the Christian Social Unit or, uh, Union, or CSU, who are the sister party for Angela Merkel's own Christian Democratic Union and the rest of the country, uh, have suffered one of their worst election results at the state level in Bavaria since uh, democracy was restored in Western Germany in the, the late 40s, early 50s. Um, you know, the, the CSU has fallen to about a 37% vote share. Um, you know, I think in the previous election, they had been up somewhere in the 48 neighborhood. Uh, they are still the largest party in the uh, state-level parliament, but they have lost their outright majority there. They're going to have to form a coalition. You know, this election result I thought was so interesting because it was cast as a uh, real referendum on Merkel's refugee policy. Uh, you know, the CSU had felt under pressure from the alternative for uh, Germany and uh, anti-migrant party on the right. And yet, come to find out the big winners here are actually the Green Party on the left. They have come in, um, I think, uh, second or third with about 18% of the vote. And, um, you know, that is a terrific result for them, doubling their share over the last time. It's raising this question about whether what we thought we knew about German politics, the politics of migration was right, or other voters are thinking about other things. Right. The polls before this election were pretty accurate in terms of the uh CSU being polling, I think they were around 35% predictions. But the the green victory is quite a surprise. Why? Uh, why were Why were we taken by surprise on that front? Well, I think that you know polls had been starting to show that they were creeping up. I think that what is probably going to surprise people is where these green voters have come from. A lot of them are actually uh, coming from the Conservative Party, the CSU. Um, mm -hmm. You know, one of the reasons that its vote tally fell uh, is because some of those voters weren't going to the alternative for Germany, the uh, AFD party on the far right. They were actually shifting further to the left to a party that is uh, very explicitly pro-migration, uh, very environmentalist. That always plays very well in uh, Germany. Um, 
But actually, uh, you know, really tried to sidestep the migration issue as much as possible. They were talking about the Greens were to the, the party that wanted to do something about uh, rapidly rising house prices, about uh, you know protecting the countryside that uh, Bavarians view as a, a local treasure. Um, so, you know, I think that what you've got is this real realignment where we've thought for a long time that the mainstream center-right parties like the CDU, like the CSU, were coming under pressure from the far right. It looks like they're under pressure from everywhere. Right. And you were saying to me earlier that uh, the Greens are not as far left as, as you might um, from a typical Green Party uh, across Europe. In Germany, the Greens, they tend to be lefty on uh, social issues, right? Uh, yeah, I think that uh, the, the Green Party in Germany is an interesting uh, animal because Green Parties uh, in most parts of the developed world are usually associated with a very far left uh, economic and social agenda. Um, you know, of course, the environmentalism is an important part of it. But in Germany... What has been developing is that the Greens have been positioning themselves more as a urban sort of culturally left-leaning party. But on the economics, there there may be a little more reasonable compared at least to, to other Green parties elsewhere. And one of the interesting things I've been tracking is the extent to which the Greens have actually been uh, you know, succeeding in attacking crony capitalism. That's a big theme for them, uh, you know, particularly in a country where you've had a bunch of scandals involving companies, especially the Dieselgate scandal in the auto industry. Um, it has been particularly bruising it and exposed a lot of political connections between both the, the center-right and the mainstream center-left party, the, the Social Democrats or the SPD. You know, the Greens have been uh, presenting themselves, especially to urban voters, but also to, to some people out in the countryside as a good governance party. And that is a, a really interesting approach that seems to be resonating here. Right. So it's it's a fatigue with the uh, the two mainstream parties is what I'm, I'm sensing here. Uh, yeah, I think that's, that's probably the right way to describe it. And the you know, fatigue is an interesting way of thinking about this, because we've often thought about these debates really in policy terms. And the issue has been, do voters care about economic policy? Do they care about migration policy? Uh, what are the specific things that mainstream parties could do that would cater to these new voter concerns? Yeah, now I've, I find myself wondering, uh, you know, not just in Germany, but in a lot of places around Europe, whether actually it's just more of an emotional fatigue issue. You know, no matter what the mainstream parties say to voters now, the voters are just anxious for something different. So where where does the uh, where does the CSU go from here? Where does Angela Merkel go? Well, I think the, the CSU is, is uh, you know, gearing itself up for a major leadership fight because they've had two big uh, contenders emerging. One is a uh, Horst Seehofer, who is the uh, federal interior minister in Berlin and has been the, the CSU's leader. Uh, you know, we talked about him on this podcast over the summer when he was feuding with Angela Merkel over migration policy because he thought that the uh, you know, government needed to tack much further right in order to see off the threat from the Alternative for Germany party. Uh, you know, at the state level, you have a fellow named Marcus Söder, who is the um, you know, leader of the state government in Bavaria, also a CSU member. Uh, they were both uh, out of the gates pretty quickly after these election results came out Sunday night, blaming each other for the uh, problem and trying to uh, escape responsibility. But you know, I, I think that the bigger point here is going to be 
you know, can any politician who is really tied up in the, the party or has been bound into this party apparatus for a long ter- long time, you know, if what the voters are saying they want is something new, uh, you know, if they're saying that they're fatigued with old style politics, you know, is that kind of is it just a matter of finding the right that kind of leader, or do they need to to find some way to look uh, further outside of their ranks than maybe uh, you know, German parties have been accustomed to doing in the past? And Angela Merkel, what does she uh, take away from this? Well, I don't think that she's uh, going anywhere soon. Uh, I think that the the real significance for her here is just that uh, you know all of a sudden within about the past six months or so. Uh, people who had thought that she, her um, you know, government was going to last for at least another two years or so before uh, the knives started coming out and people started jockeying to replace her. Now, all of a sudden, that seems to be happening very quickly. And it, it, it's happening at an important time uh, you know, for both Germany and the rest of the EU. Probably a lot of other European leaders are looking at this with a fair amount of alarm because they've been hoping that as we reach a critical stage of Brexit negotiations and, uh, you know, face the prospect of an Italian debt fiasco, uh, you know, as the the new insurgent government in Rome starts, uh, you know, putting the the finishing touches on their budget, uh, you know, people have probably been inclined to look to Berlin, hoping that there would be stability there. You know, now maybe there won't be. Maybe Germans are saying that they actually want a little bit more competition uh, in Berlin, and maybe German voters are finding ways to push for that competition, uh, whether Berlin wants to give it to them or not. We've been talking about uh, the changing tides and currents of German politics, and this is Foreign Edition from The Wall Street Journal. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com WSJ. That's V-A-N-T-A dot WSJ. Drive time, gym time, anytime. Podcasts from the Wall Street Journal. Check out all our shows at wsj.com slash podcasts. That's wsj.com slash podcasts. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Foreign Edition. Welcome back to Foreign Edition from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. I am Joseph Sternberg, still in for Mary Kissel this week. I'm joined on the line by my colleague Hugo Restall in Asia. And Hugo, we're going to go to your part of the world now to talk about China. Now, this is an issue that we have discussed on this podcast in the past. Uh, China's, I suppose one could call it a, a growing or an accelerating repression of the Muslim minority population in the west of the country, uh, in Xinjiang. Mm-hmm. Uh, province, the, the Uyghurs or the, the Muslim ethnic group at issue here. And, you know, we've been having a lot of reports, uh, you know, over the past few months about uh, you know, how Beijing is starting to move 
large numbers, uh, shockingly large numbers of Uyghurs into re-education camps to try to stamp out, um, you know, after many decades of trying in various forms or you know, various forms to try to suppress Uyghur cultural identity. Um, you know, Beijing seems to be ratcheting up that effort in a major way. Uh, you know, last week we had an attempt actually from Beijing, if you can believe it, to try to legalize some of these camps by, you know, passing a law that suggested that maybe Beijing would have a legal authority to do this. That seems to be prompting a lot of people outside of the country to pay attention. And I think that the, the big question here has to be what is, is going on? I mean, why is it that, um, you know, Beijing suddenly feels emboldened to be continuing down this path? And the more and more controversial it becomes uh, internationally, the more pressure, uh, you know, for example, members of the United States Congress try to, to place on, on Beijing for this, the more Beijing really seems to be digging in its heels on this. Right. So there's a shifting uh, defense going on. You could call it the shifting defense of the indefensible, really. Uh, they started out saying that these were vocational training camps for petty criminals um, and that uh, re-education camps didn't exist. This was just something the West was making up. Since then, we've seen gradual shift. One part of it, as you mentioned, was the uh, amendment of the law in Xinjiang to allow the use of vocational schools to de-radicalize uh, Islamic extremists. Um, so that was retroactive and basically was an attempt to legalize what what they had been doing. Although in, in many respects, uh, the use of these camps uh, is still illegal uh, according to China's own laws. And then we've had uh, a couple of, of uh, officials come out and make defenses of the policy uh, one of them was Yo Chuan, uh, official in the United Front Work Department, which oversees minority uh, policy, uh, talking about sinicization, that uh, the sinicization of minorities must go on. And this includes um, language, culture, dress, etc., uh, and religion, of course. Uh, and, uh, you know, this was beneficial for society and, and necessary. Just in the last uh, day, we've had uh, uh, another official in Xinjiang, Shorat Zakir, uh, make a full-throated defense of the uh, camps, saying that uh, they're necessary to reform people who have been influenced by terrorism and extremism, get them to accept modern science and enhance their understanding of Chinese history and culture. So uh, I think what, what's been going on behind the scenes was was really laid out pretty well by a scholar named James Leibold, uh, who wrote on the Jamestown Foundation's website and talked about the theory that uh, has sprung up in the last few years about how to handle minorities in China. And this there's an official named Julienha who, uh, who actually mounted the initial defense of uh, the camps in Geneva in which he denied that there were re-education camps. But he is he is the theorist behind this new policy. Uh, he's come up with his own theory of stability, which uh, basically requires not just focusing on, uh, on religion, but uh, material and economic development, political, cultural, spiritual, and ideological issues that affect stability. He calls for the standardization of human behavior, chillingly Orwellian uh, language. Um, and basically, it's it's a comprehensive systems engineering project in their terms, um, where they can manufacture stability through the right blend of governance tools, including these these camps. So that is that is the underpinning of this. And really, the Uyghurs are the most prominent victims of of the new policy, but they will not be the only policy. It's pretty clear that this is going to be rolled out 
for all minorities across China in one form or another. Um, and instead of celebrating, uh, you know, the different costumes and languages that as as the communist government actually did for the last uh, 50 odd years, they're going to force minorities to speak standard Chinese wear standard uh, dress and fit in, in in every respect with the rest of the population. I mean, this really, it is hard to fathom how extraordinary this story is that something like this is happening in the 21st century, because you know, we're living in a political environment in many parts of the uh, Western world where you know, comparisons or, or slurs about political opponents being like the Nazis get thrown around. Um, you know, willy-nilly and, and without any kind of seriousness or you know, thought given to how serious an allegation or, or suggestion that kind of thing is. But this actually seems to me an awful lot like the kind of environment that you found, um, you know, under the, the Nazi regime in Europe in the 30s and 40s, because you know, certainly there is not the death camp uh, element of this, but you can see a lot of elements of you know, trying to gin up uh, security fears where there aren't really any, because I don't think that anyone is going to claim that China has, you know, any sort of substantial problem with uh, Islamist terrorism in the same way that many other parts of the world do. Um, you know, they, they've had attacks, but but not, yeah, it's not uh, it's not a crisis. Uh, certainly, the, the attacks that they've had have been of a, of a very small and manageable scale. And you have in the Uyghurs a uh, minority religious uh, population that has managed uh, more or less to you know, coexist with a very hostile uh, Communist Party regime for uh, you know, decades now. And you have uh, this conclusion on the part of the, the regime in, in the country that now all of a sudden this religious uh, minority constitutes some sort of threat to the broader society and that the solution to this is to encamp people and then uh, you know, try to re-educate them. I mean, I, I suppose the big difference here between um, you know, what China is claiming that they are doing uh, and you know, the situation in Europe in the 30s or 40s is that they're is in theory some attempt to kind of re-educate and then what release the the Uyghurs back into you know, Chinese civilization robbed of, of any of their unique cultural heritage. But I mean, it is you know, listeners really should understand. And we are talking millions of people here, so this is not a small group either that is being affected by this. And uh, that makes it all the more remarkable to me that Beijing thinks that they can get away with this. That they seem to be prepared right. to uh, discuss this on the world stage uh, and even, you know, think that they can sanction it by, uh, you know, reconfiguring their laws to make it legal somehow. Right. So just to give some some context to this, uh, in July, the Global Times newspaper, which is owned by the Communist Party, uh, reported that there were 1.26 million uh, Uyghurs in the uh, re-education camps, then called vocational training camps, uh, in Xinjiang. So uh, that that's pretty much in line with what uh, the scholars have said about the capacity of these camps, um, which I think are definitely it's definitely fair to call them concentration camps. They are you know heavily guarded, you know, uh, barbed wire, very Spartan conditions. Um, the the inmates complain of, of not being well fed. Um, and uh, and being mistreated, being held in uh, solitary confinement, being tortured, 
Um, and they've been separated from their children very significantly. The children have been moved to, uh, to separate facilities. Uh, and there's uh, a transfer going on of prisoners from these camps to other prisons, uh, regular prisons in the rest of China, because the camps are over capacity, which is, again, quite alarming, um, given that these, these camps have a capacity of more than a million people. So uh, prison, these, the Uyghurs are being moved into regular high security prisons uh, with ordinary criminals um, in the rest of China, which uh, suggests that the the uh, supposed training that is being offered is is not uh, is not significant. I mean, the the officials are claiming that uh, life in the camps is wonderful and that the the Uyghurs are being exposed to things that they never uh, never had access to before, but like like sports and and music, um, and and the tales that the few people who emerge from these camps tell is a is a very different story. It's very stark. Um, mistreatment that they undergo there. Yeah, you know, I want to work around to a uh, conclusion about uh, you know, some of the potential for perhaps international players to exert some pressure in Beijing to you know, try to you know, ease the situation, let up the pressure on, on the Uyghurs. But I want to get there by way of uh, you know, what I think is an important issue to talk about in the context of the Communist Party regime in China, which is its stability and the extent to which other might be a perception within uh, the regime in China that perhaps it is less stable than uh, people on the outside tend to think. And, uh, you know, that might be a controversial point for me to raise. I think the, the, the reason that I would ask that kind of question is because, you know, the, the picture that emerges on, on the Uyghur repression that is currently undergoing is uh, currently underway is that the regime feels under some kind of pressure from the existence of this large religious minority in a, a big part of a geographic area of uh, China to the West. Um, you know, this is happening at the same time that the state apparatus of political censorship on, on the Han Chinese ethnic majority within the country continues apace. So that, you know, they continue uh, to be extremely skittish about any kind of you know, political discussion that might challenge the, the regime in any way. And, you know, they're also coming under a fair amount of economic stress, uh, you know, to do with the Trump administration's uh, trade policies and the potential implications of that for the Chinese economy. I mean, am I right thinking that actually what we are seeing are some signs of a regime that might, you know, this isn't necessarily a sign of strength. It's a, a sign of concern about the stability of the regime and that that actually potentially creates some pressure points or some opportunities for people outside who are concerned about this, you know, political figures like Trump or European leaders, uh, you know, to start raising some of these these instances a little more vigorously. Well, I think you're definitely onto something there in terms of this regime is not uh, uh, inherently stable. Um, this crackdown parallels another crackdown going on against uh, Christianity in the rest of China. And it's also coinciding with the rise of a cult of personality around Xi Jinping. Um, in fact, uh, there are reports that uh, museums and textbooks are removing mentions of Deng Xiaoping, the father of reform and, and opening up, and replacing him with uh, more... Uh, encomiums to Xi Jinping. So, uh, and of course, Xi Jinping's policies are quite uh, different from Deng Xiaoping's. He's more about control and, and closing down 
access to the outside world rather than uh, opening up. So, um, yeah, I think this this current regime is uh, is looking increasingly brittle. But I would caution against um, interpreting this crackdown and and others um, as being signs of of short term weakness or response to the Trump uh, uh, tariff. I think this is this is something that is uh, endogenous to the, the Chinese political system, where the, their, their great vulnerability is the the inability to handle internal conflict within the party and and uh, determine who the successors will be and how to manage factional conflict. And so Xi Jinping has come in um, initially expected to be another consensus leader. And has turned out to be a uh, a dictator, and uh, has consolidated his power over all aspects of policy, and has eclipsed all of his colleagues in in the upper rank of the uh, of the Communist Party. So that's that sows the seed of of instability for for China's future. But in the short term, um, I, I expect. Uh, there to be less and less room for dissent um, or or any kind of um, uh, civil society or, or um, you know development of, of China's uh, political uh, institutions. Well, we have been talking about China's repression of its uh, Muslim Uyghur minority. But we're going to have to leave it there for today. We have uh, covered about as much global disorder as we have time for in this podcast. So I'm going to thank my colleague Hugo Restall for joining, and uh, please follow him on Twitter at Hugo Restall, all one word. I am Joseph Sternberg, also from the Wall Street Journal editorial page, and I am on Twitter at Joseph Sternberg, uh, all one word. Give us a shout. Uh, we'd love to know what you uh, think of the podcasts. And uh, thank you for listening to Foreign Edition from the Wall Street Journal. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.